tonight we are looking at Isaiah chapter 6, and I have to acknowledge that this is one of the, probably the, the most intimidating passages in all the Bible, because probably more than any other passage, it really reveals the sovereignty and the holiness of God. And it presents it in such a way that you almost can see the vision that Isaiah sees. He, he presents it in such a picturesque way that you come away with kind of the same humble feeling that, maybe not the same, obviously, because it was Isaiah's vision, but we come away with that sense of humility and awe in this vision of God. And don't think there's any way that I can do it full justice in our time together tonight, but I hope that we can glean some of the main ideas from it and that it would transform us and change us. And so tonight we're looking at Isaiah chapter 6, which is a record of a vision that Isaiah sees in which God reveals his glory, reveals his holiness to Isaiah. And then God issues a call to Isaiah, a call to which Isaiah responds to be God's prophet to the nation. And so this is, uh, this is the call of Isaiah to be the Lord's prophet. Isaiah 6 verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. As we think about how this chapter is structured, as I was reading a couple of different commentaries, one of the commentaries made a really helpful observation, and that is that the chapter is really broken down into two sections. 
the first section in the first half of the chapter has to do with the vision that Isaiah saw of the glory of the Lord. And then the second part of the chapter deals with the call of Isaiah to be the Lord's prophet and Isaiah's response to that call. And he made a really helpful observation that that you can really frame the whole chapter around verbs of perception. So in the first part of the chapter, you have Isaiah seeing the Lord. In fact, verse 1 says that, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then the second part of the chapter has another verb of perception. I heard the Lord. And so you have really this kind of basic structure of Isaiah seeing the Lord in all of his glory and then hearing the voice of the Lord and responding to that call. And so I just kind of want to structure the chapter around those two ideas. So first part of the chapter, I saw the Lord and he sees a vision of God in verses one through four. What does Isaiah see in this vision of God? What is revealed to him about God, about his being, his existence, his character in this vision that he sees? I think one of the things that's clearly revealed to Isaiah is the Lord's sovereignty. The Lord's sovereignty. For example, in verse one, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And so if you think about it, Verse 1 is really a contrast, isn't it? Because how does the verse begin? The verse begins with the ending of a king's reign, right? A king leaving the throne. But then it also affirms that the Lord is still on his throne. So it, it kind of communicates the idea that even though within Israel, within Judah, you have Kings rise and fall. The Lord remains sovereign, doesn't he? And the, the opening part of Isaiah, the very first verse, in fact, tells us that Isaiah's ministry spanned the administrations of several kings. And so this is something that Isaiah saw with his own eyes, his own experience, that kings rise and fall, but the Lord remains supreme. And that is really a common thread that runs through all the prophets, is no matter what's going on in history, no matter what's going on in politics, in international affairs, whatever's going on in between militaries and, and wars, or whatever's, whatever's happening in intrigue and, and conspiracies and trying to overthrow kings and all of that, all those backroom deals, whatever's going on, God reigns. He reigns over everything. From our perspective, it can look like at times that things are just chaos, that things are out of control. But nothing is ever out of control in God's world, is it? And so Uzziah leaves the throne. And Uzziah left the throne really in shame and in embarrassment because he was a good king for a long time, but then he finished his reign with really a a time of pride and self-exaltation in which the Lord humbled him through leprosy. And he finished the rest of his life in that leprous condition. And so he leaves in shame and embarrassment, but the Lord reigns in glory and exaltation. So the Lord is high and exalted. And, and oftentimes the Bible uses these metaphors of spatial dimension because, I mean, the Lord is everywhere, right? 
the Lord is everywhere, but it refers to the Lord in these terms so that we can comprehend some idea of his majesty, of his sovereignty. So he is high, he's exalted. He sees this throne high and lifted up to communicate that authority and that sovereignty. And it says that the train of his robe filled the temple. Now there is a little bit of disagreement about what that word train means there, the train of his robe. Normally when we think of a train on a on a dress or a robe, it's usually something long, right? Flowing behind, like we would maybe like a wedding dress, the train of a wedding dress. And so this long thing that, that follows the, the robe. And so that's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding this Hebrew word is simply a hem. So just, just the bottom edge or the bottom hem of the garment, not necessarily a long train, but just the normal bottom hem of the garment. Now, either way you take it, think about the fact that what is it that's filling the temple? It's just the bottom hem of the Lord's robe or the, the train of his robe. In other words, it's just a small part, right? And it fills the temple. And by the way, this is the temple in, in Isaiah's vision, this is the temple that is going to be laid waste because of the disobedience of the people. And so Isaiah, kind of like Moses, remember when Moses saw the glory of the Lord and, and Moses desired to see the glory of the Lord and God said, I can't show you all of me, right? No one can see my face and live. And so God said, I'm going to put you in this little cleft of the rock. I'm going to shield your eyes and I'm going to pass over you and you can see my back. Of course, this is all metaphorical language, right? So God's, in other words, Moses sees just a small glimpse of the glory of God. And I get the sense that that's what Isaiah is seeing here as well. When it talks about just the hem of the Lord's garment or just the train of the robe of his garment filling the temple, which means the Lord himself is so much more and exalted and glorious. And so he's sovereign. He is huge. He's high. He's exalted. He is the Lord over everything. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And so these are a type of angel, right? You have seraphim, you have cherubim that are mentioned in the Bible. And the seraphim is the Hebrew way of expressing a plural. A singular would be a seraph. So a seraphim is plural of this type of angel. And so you have six, so you have a group of angels. Who knows how many? But this also communicates the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? Because he has a whole court, if you will, who is with him in this heavenly throne room. So he has all of these servants, angelic servants. And these aren't just your run-of-the-mill little wise men, you know, or, or royal servants running around doing the king's bidding. These are the mightiest of creatures. These angels that he describes with six wings, two covering their face, two covering their feet, probably in humility. In, in, in showing their humility and subservience to the Lord. But with two of them, they were flying. These amazing creatures, and they are merely servants. 
messengers of the Lord. So his sovereignty. But he also sees not only the sovereignty of God, but he sees his holiness too. He sees the holiness of God. And so these angels, these seraphim, they're calling out to one another. And probably the idea here is in some, some kind of like an antiphonal choir. Like there's a call and a response. And, and so they're, they're singing or crying out back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A thrice holy. And to my knowledge, there is not an attribute of God that is described in scripture with this kind of emphasis. Where you take one of the attributes of God and you multiply it times three. How do you multiply infinity, right? You can't. His holiness, one holiness is already infinite, right? In other words, in human language, the best that we can possibly try to communicate, we're, we're taking what is already immense and infinite and we're multiplying it by three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and really often through scripture, we see trios of things, don't we? The number three used a lot in the sense of uh, perfection or completion or wholeness. And, and so this is just emphasizing the full absolute holiness of God. What is the idea of holiness? The root core idea of holiness is set apartness, that which is distinct, that which is different. In other words, God is in his holy other category, completely unique and set apart from everything else in creation. There is the creator and there's the created. And there is an infinite gap separating the two. He is set apart. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Just to emphasize the point that this little robe that's in the temple, filling the temple, that's just a small part of him. Here he expresses very clearly that the whole world is full of the glory of the Lord. So he is holy above any other creature in the universe. And then, so he sees the sovereignty of God. He sees the holiness of God. And he sees the, the heavenly worship of God. And you see these angels singing, crying out at the sound of their voices. The, the, whose voices? The angels, right? The seraphim. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Now, that's not at the sound of God's voice. That's at the sound of the voices of the angels. At the sound of the voices of the angels who are merely God's servants, it is almost like an earthquake and a volcano went off inside of the temple. It's shaking, smoke, and that's just in response to the voices of the angels worshiping the majestic and holy God. It's an incredible vision, isn't it? And so it's, it's no wonder then that when Isaiah responds to this vision, so first he sees the vision, then he responds to that vision of the presence of God. And the first thing that he responds with is the conviction of his own sin. And that is the right response whenever anyone comes, when, whenever anyone confronts the holiness and the sovereignty 
of their creator. He is, he is undone, he says. Who am I? I? I should not be here. I should not be seeing this. I am, I am the, I'm a sinner. He says in verse number five, woe to me. That's the idea of, when, when you say woe in, in biblical language, that's the idea of calling down a curse on someone or announcing a curse. He's saying, woe to me because I am ruined. I am brought low. I am nothing. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's a metaphor, isn't it, for sin and perhaps the sin of words, of what he has spoken. Unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, he accepts his own sinfulness as well as the sinfulness of his whole people. And like many, many places in scripture, we see the biblical characters, biblical writers, kind of a, a trying to, I'm looking for the right word, but, it, but it's basically a, a joining together, a, a, a linkage with their people, where, where they see themselves not in isolation, but they, they see themselves in linked unity with their people. And so, for example, in Daniel chapter 9, where, where Daniel prays and Daniel confesses the sin of the people of God, he confesses all of these wicked things that the people of Judah had done, even though Daniel himself probably had not done them. And he says, we. He says, us. He includes himself Corporate solidarity. That's what I was looking for. This idea of corporate solidarity, that, that we are one as a group. And so he, that's what he's doing here. I have sinned, but we as a people have sinned before the Lord. And on top of that, here I am, a sinful person, and I've seen the glorious Lord Almighty. It's almost as if he's saying, just kill me. Some other places in scripture, in Genesis, for example, we see people where when they believe they've seen the Lord, they believe they're going to die. And and Isaiah has that sense here. I've seen the Lord. I'm a sinner. Woe to me. I'm going to die. I'm cursed. But then he is cleansed instead of cursed. And that's the grace of the Lord, isn't it? So one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Again, this is metaphorical. This is pictorial language, isn't it? This is, it's a vision. And we don't see here a sacrifice of an animal. We don't see specifically the shedding of blood for the atonement of sins. But these things are implied in, in this vision. Because where is the coal taken from? The coal is taken from the altar. And it's a live coal. It's a, it's a hot coal, implying this is, this is where the, the sacrifices are made. Maybe a sacrifice just having been made or about to be made. And he takes this from the, the, from the altar and touches his lips with it. Why? Because that was the part that was mentioned as being sinful. And, and so involved in the atonement of sin is sacrifice 
and also it pain, right? There is a punishment. And so this is touched to his lips and it, it cleanses him by the decree of the Lord and he is forgiven. So yes, he is, he is a, a person who is a sinner. He's in the midst of a people who are sinners. He left to himself, he would be undone. Left to himself, yes, woe to him. But because of the grace of God, he's cleansed. And God says, I'm going to use you. My grace is poured out upon you, and I am calling you to myself to be mine. It's a great picture of the grace of God. It's a great picture of what we receive in Christ, who died on the cross of Calvary. And so he sees the Lord. He sees this vision of the sovereign, holy God who is worshipped by these incredible beings. He responds to that vision with the conviction of sin and then receiving the gracious cleansing of his sin from the Lord. And then he hears the Lord. So he sees the Lord, this vision, and then he hears the voice of the Lord. Verses 8 through 13. So he hears the Lord, and the first thing that he hears is the Lord's call and he responds. So he hears the call of the Lord, and Isaiah willingly, obediently responds. And so verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? By the way, in the text, this is the first time the Lord speaks. So he sees this vision, rumblings and thunders and shaking and smoke, the angels calling back and forth to one another, but this is the first time that the Lord speaks. And the Lord says, there is, there is a commission that needs to be given. There is a need. There is a, a role that needs to be filled. And isn't it amazing that the Lord, even though he is infinite, he is all-powerful, he can do whatever he chooses to do, that God throughout history has chosen to work through people to accomplish his purposes. That's been his pattern since the beginning, isn't it? He works through people. He uses people as his tools, as his channels of his grace. And so here, God can do whatever he wants, but he's saying, I, I want to use you, Isaiah. I want to use you as my instrument. So who shall I send? Who will go for us? Who's the us? Well, I guess there's a couple ways you could look at it. There's one God, right? So let's establish that. There's one God who is commissioning Isaiah. A couple of ways you could probably look at it. Some might see it as a, a subtle reference to the Trinity, in the sense that even though it's not clearly spelled out here, really never is clearly elaborated on in the Old Testament, but a sense of a plurality within a unity. Uh, you see it in different places. Um, you see it in Genesis 1, let us make man in our own image. So it could be a, a reference, subtle reference to the, the Trinity of God. Another possibility is just in the text, in the passage itself, we've already seen an us. We, we've seen the Lord along with his angelic court, right? And, and I would have no problem going either way in the sense of it could refer to the Trinity, bringing in some New Testament understanding. It could refer to just his court, angels. And not that the angels are commissioning Isaiah, 
but that they are there with God in harmony with God. And God is voicing this question to them in his audience. Who are we going to send? Who's going to go for us? And Isaiah hears this word of the Lord and he says, here I am. It's availability, right? So there's availability. Here I am. I am available. And there's a willingness. Send me to go. So the Lord calls him and Isaiah responds. And then right before I go to the next point, I want, I want to think about this because I, I think this may be an intentional contrast that's being set up in this vision. What are the two main verbs of perception that characterize Isaiah's response to the Lord? He sees and he hears, right? And so he sees and his eyes are open to see and to understand, right? He hears, his ears are open to hear the call of the Lord and respond to that call. What the Lord's about to tell Isaiah next is going to show the great contrast between Isaiah and the rest of the people in Judah. Because Isaiah had eyes to see. Isaiah had ears to hear. But when Isaiah delivers the word of the Lord to the people, they're going to be deaf and blind and dead. And so the Lord says, here's, here's my commission to you. And my commission is that when you go out and preach the word, the people who are already calloused in their hearts are only going to become more hardened. He says to Isaiah, go, here's your mission. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, this is, this is incredibly um, significant, what the Lord is telling Isaiah here. Now, when he says to Isaiah, go and tell this people this, be blind, be deaf, be hard-hearted. I don't take it that that's, that's word for word what Isaiah was saying to the people. The way that I take it is that this is a summary of the effect that's going to happen when Isaiah delivers the whole message of the Lord that the Lord has commissioned him to preach. So in other words, whenever Isaiah takes the word of the Lord, whether it be Deuteronomy, Genesis, the prophets, the Psalms, whatever Isaiah takes and, and, and the additional visions and messages that the Lord gives to him to deliver, that whenever Isaiah goes and preaches and proclaims these oracles, these, these messages from God, that the net effect of that is going to be further blindness, further deafness, and further hard-heartedness to the Word of God. How would you like to, in 2018, be a young man that you feel like the Lord is calling you into ministry and... And somebody says to you, 
May the Lord bless you in your ministry, but you're never going to have one soul converted your entire life of ministry. In fact, every time that you preach the Bible, people are going to get up and walk out. Every time you preach the word of God, you're not going to soften hearts. You're going to make them even harder. Every time you preach the word of God, you're not going to open eyes to see and understand. You're going to be dimming them and making their ears close tighter and tighter. Why, Why would the Lord give this role, give this mission to Isaiah? And it says specifically in the text that this is Isaiah's role to go and preach the word. But in in doing that, God is actually going to be going with him, but not to soften, but to harden. So that they will not listen and repent and be healed. You say, wow, that, that seems the exact opposite of what God would want, right? Wouldn't God want preacher, go out, preach the message of God, people listen, people repent, people turn to the Lord. There's a response, a positive response, and the Lord heals them. Well, here's the thing, is Isaiah is not the first one that the Lord's called to deliver his message, right? So there's been prophet after prophet after prophet, There's been Elijah, there's been Elisha, there's been Nathan, there's been Gad, there's been these other prophets of God, Hosea. There have been other earlier prophets that the Lord has used. And guess what they did to all of those prophets? They ignored them. They ignored them. Some of them they mocked, some of them they stoned, some of them they killed. They turned their backs on them and they continued to go their own way. And so what this is, is a further, you might call it a judicial hardening in the sense that God is intentionally hardening their hearts. Why? So that he might judge them. Because their opportunities have passed. And all this is going to do is in Isaiah going and preaching to a deaf, blind, hard-hearted people is it's going to multiply their judgment because they will have more and more word of the Lord, more and more light, more and more revelation to which they will be held accountable. So it's it's even going to become a heavier judgment because of these messages from Isaiah. In other words, God is... He's, he's sending Isaiah out, not on a mission of mercy, but on a mission of judgment. Because God's holy, and he's just, he's sovereign, and he has already given plenty of opportunities for these people to follow his covenant. And they failed and failed and failed and turned their back time and time again. And now God is going to bring the Babylonians and there's nothing that can avert it because God is determined to do this. And because he's determined to judge them, he's going to judicially harden them. So there's no positive response to Isaiah's message. It takes very seriously the holiness of God, doesn't it? That God is righteous and holy. 
And so as Isaiah goes out, he's simply going to be hardening the people's callousness by the proclamation of the word. And so the people's judgment then is confirmed because they're not going to turn because their ears are going to be deaf, their eyes dull. They're not going to turn. They're not going to be healed. And so that means judgment is coming. Judgment is confirmed. And so Isaiah says, Lord, how long, how long do I need to do this mission? Preaching the word with no response, preaching the word with people only becoming harder. And God says, here's how long until the cities are ruined without inhabitant, till the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And I think the first part of um, verse number 13 is also a part of that judgment. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. In other words, God has said, they have, they have rebelled against me, and now I am determined in my holiness and justice to punish them. And your messages are not going to have a positive effect. They're going to have a hardening effect, which means their judgment is confirmed. And you're going to continue this mission until my full judgment has been poured out on them. And the cities are laid waste. And the houses are empty. And even when 90% have been taken away into captivity or killed, there's going to be more judgment to come. That's what I think the point of the first part of verse 13 is. Even though there's still a tenth in the land, there's still more judgment coming. God's judgment will not be exhausted until God says it's exhausted. And whatever you can say about that, you have to say it's holy. You have to say it's righteous, it's just, it is deserved. But there's still mercy and judgment. And that's where the passage ends. It's a very very heavy message, isn't it? It's a very heavy message. Isaiah, go and preach and make these people hard-hearted and lead them into judgment. But, but there is mercy in judgment. And this is how it ends. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. What does that refer to? Well, He's referring, he's using a couple of examples from nature. When you cut down a tree, you have a stump that's left, right? And so what the Lord is saying through this imagery to Isaiah is, my judgment when it comes on Jerusalem, when it comes on Judah, it is going to cut down all these trees. And, and my people is like a tree, and I'm going to judge it, I'm, I'm going to cut it down, but when I enact my judgment on it and cut it down, there's still going to be a stump. And what does that refer to? It refers to those who are the remnant of grace who are left behind. Either left behind or after the captivity, they come back. And that stump will regrow the tree. That's the idea, is, is God's going to cut down this bad tree, all the bad branches, all, this, all the sinfulness and evil, but then what's left is going to be a holy seed. And it will regrow in the land of promise. So, yes, judgment is coming. And Isaiah, that's your mission, to preach judgment and to lead people into that judgment. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is... I have mercy on my people. What's interesting about this, and, and if you've been with us on Sunday mornings in Romans, 
is this is exactly the concept that Paul is thinking of when he says, not all who are Israel are Israel. This is exactly what he's thinking of. That the vast majority of these Israelites in Isaiah's day, they're, they're the Israel that's outside of the true Israel. And they're going to be cut down and they're going to be wiped out. And then God is going to bring back a remnant. He's going to bring back a, a holy remnant of grace that you might could say is the Israel within Israel. And it's going to start again. And so God is, he's not done with Israel, but he's going to cleanse it, isn't he? I mean, in a similar way, like he did with the flood. God wasn't done with humanity, but he cleansed it, didn't he? He cleansed it, he judged it, but then he left a little tree stump in Noah and his family. And it regrew, didn't it? That's the image of what's going to happen to Judah and the the people of God is, yes, there's going to be judgment, but there's also grace. There's mercy in the midst of that judgment. And God's plan isn't through. There's, There's still more to come. Because all of these glorious messages that Isaiah is going to proclaim, there has to be a place for those new, for those glorious messages to be fulfilled. And so that's going to come later. Judgment first, then restoration and glory.